0: Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Library. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina. This this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and they are behind me again because I am back from my travels in the wilds of Minnesota. I read through a book a week, and then I give you a quick synopsis, and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like, and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. This week's book of the week joined my library after I read Don't Call It a Cult, and the author of that book, which was Sarah Berman, uh, mentioned this week's author, Rick Allen Ross, uh, making this week's book of the week, boy that was a clumsy intro, (laughs) cults inside and out, how people get in and can get out, and the accompanying cocktail is called Southern Death Cult, which is two ounces of whiskey, two ounces of peach liqueur, two ounces of bourbon whiskey, three ounces of coke and three ounces of 7-up so let's do this Ross got his start with cult intervention when a cult tried to infiltrate his grandmother's retirement home in the early 80s isn't that a hell of an introduction she complained to him about the very unpleasant woman who told her she was going to hell if the grandmother didn't convert from Judaism to whatever the cult was Ross was outraged rightly so, got with the home director and expelled all the cult members who had been posing as staff. And basically his career was born from there. Sometimes, you know, people, people, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? Sometimes it just finds you. And this, this found him because of his grandmother. And rightly so, like I said, who wouldn't be outraged at that bullshit? Yeah, shrinkflation strikes again. It's not quite two ounces of the whiskey. This book is laid out fairly methodically. It opens with several chapters on the different types of cults, starting with the largest and most infamous, infamous your Jones Town, your Unification Church, Falun Gong, al Moving into the smaller but no less infamous, Al-Qaeda, Branch Davidians, Charles Manson, and even explaining how a cult can be a single-family unit. Uh, highlighting the Winfred Everett Wright murders in 2002 as an example. I had had never heard of this. I don't know how this flew under my radar, because back then I was still watching the news. Flew under my radar. This was a man and four women. They faced criminal charges in the malnutrition death of a 19-month-old boy. The leader of this cult, Winfred Everett Scott, fathered 13 children with the four women, coming to dominate the family. They're always called the family. Through manipulation and white guilt that interesting. See, Wright was African-American and the four women were not. And Wright convinced them that they had to work off karma because of white men being so cruel to black men over the ages. That was in 2002. That's how long these talking points have been around. At least 20 years we've had these talking points on, so isn't that frightening? And if those talking points being used today politically don't like turn your blood to ice in your veins, you might just be a member of a cult. Seriously two ounces of each of the liqueurs. Yes, two ounces of each of the liqueurs. Look. Oh yeah, glad I went with the big highball glass. Also, I didn't have peach liqueur. I have peach schnapps, which schnapps is technically sweeter. Uh, peach liqueur is just peaches steeped in alcohol, basically, to, to give the alcohol a peach flavor. Peach liqueur is actually um, distilled with with more sugar, but this is what I had on hand. I feel like my liquor cabinet's already groaning, so I went with the with the schnapps instead. I might not have enough room for the sodas. There's no way in hell I'm drinking all of this today. Ross then goes on to explain what is a destructive cult. And this is particularly informative given that the automatic clapback of most religious cults today is that most modern religions started out as a fringe cult movement. Like Christianity, Islam, Lutheranism, Mormonism, Buddhism, Judaism. All of these started out pretty dang small. Sometimes way back in the day. Like Judaism is you know over 2,000 years old. Christianity is over 2,000 years old. And, of course, then they grew, and then you had the splinter groups and all of that. And that's, okay, could be a fair point. But as Ross points out, not all destructive cults are religious-based organizations. They can be political, health-focused, business-driven, and, yes, religious. Quote from the book, direct quote, Cults can be based on some form of training, therapy, business plan, philosophy, diet, or exercise. And religion cults end quote cults can be extremely abusive cult of two and at the end of the book when he's going over interventions he's guided uh, kind of case studies if you will he applies the principles of a cult to a woman who's headed into an abusive and controlling relationship so i mean the techniques the tactics used are the same basically what are some of the things that define a construct a, a constructive a destructive cult he pulls information from psychiatrists, um, Robert J. Lifted and Margaret Singer. Uh, he uses quite a bit of their work to, to explain it, which is fair because he's an interventionist, not a psychiatrist. He hasn't done that level of study. So it's fair that he should refer to some experts and provide us with what the experts say. Now he is an expert in his own right, but his expert comes specifically in helping people leave. This was all supposed to fit in a highball glass. I don't quite have, I I mean, I have highball glasses, but they're not even this big, and it is already filled, filled, filled. This is going to be interesting. There were three characteristics that are are pretty distinctive to destructive cults. So a destructive cult, first off, a destructive cult is going to have a charismatic leader, someone who becomes an object of worship, and kind of the, the founding ideals of the group lose their power, ceding position to this charismatic leader. I mean, basically, it all becomes about the head honcho, not about what they wanted. Not not about the cult's principles. It becomes about the guy in power. My God. My God, this is so full. I should have halved it. I knew I should have halved it. It would have been easy to have this recipe. And you have to stir carefully because it's a carbonated beverage. You stir it too vigorously and it's going to explode. So, step uh, part two. A destructive cult is going to include coercive persuasion or thought reform, which is better known as brainwashing. Right? Everybody's familiar with the concept of brainwashing. Everybody thinks everybody else is brainwashed, but not them. I... I too I am sure have been guilty of this and three a destructive cult is going to use economic sexual or other exploitation of group members by the leader and ruling coterie additionally Margaret Singer includes that when evaluating a group as a whole to determine if they meet criteria for a cult we should consider the origin of the group and the role of the leader the power structure or relationship between the leader and followers and the use of a coordinated program of persuasion that thought reform brainwashing uh, the leaders will almost always meet the clinical definition of a narcissistic personality disorder or even a, a psychopath. So, let's try this. Ooh, God, that's a lot of booze. It's not bad. Definitely not driving anywhere today, though. Even if I don't drink the whole thing, I would not be comfortable driving with this much alcohol in me. Yikes. So, the list included in the book sort of reconfirms my opinion that Aleister Crowley, by the way, uh, one one more reason to... There's one more reason to read, basically, is that knowledge builds on itself. So I'm now pretty convinced that Crowley was a sociopath. Uh, Back to cults. Although, he is apropos to this conversation because he was certainly... He certainly did his best to found a cult, right? He had that abbey in in Italy. He he wanted to be a cult leader. He just was too scattered to actually pull it off, I think. Uh, Charisma... Of a leader, incidentally, is a double-edged sword because it's great if the leader is charismatic and not a psychopath or a narcissist. Um, that's where you get like good things. That's where truly good things can happen. Um, you, you can build better communities that way, and it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. But the the narcissism is kind of a foundational pillar for cults. If the leader is not a secret bastard, you might not be in a cult. Of course, on the other hand. The secret part is the bitch to find out about because most people don't know about that narcissistic trait until the damage is already done and they're in too deep or they're out but completely destroyed, you know, financially, mentally, physically, whatever. Now, how about brainwashing? Um, It starts with, quote, reliance on intense interpersonal and psychological attacks to destabilize an individual's sense of self to promote compliance, which if you've ever, ever done a seminar course on battered women, that's exactly how abusers start, right? They, they start by tearing you down just a little bit at a time so that it's not a surprise when they start hitting you. Alright. He even he includes um, talking points and I, and I can't think of her name off the top of my head. I'll, I'll try and find it and put it up above me. But she she she's included in the book. She was a, a battered woman whose child was ultimately beaten by her her spouse significant other I don't know if they're married uh, he did jail time like 20 years for it she herself was extremely battered herself she had like multiple broken bones contusions he didn't start hitting her for like the first three years of their relationship he had to break her down significantly to get to that point where she would stay and take it and that is not uncommon in abusive relationships Basically, you break him down, you build him back up. That incidentally does tie in with the Nexium program, as discussed in the Don't Call It a Cult book. And yes, Keith Rainier, Nexium, and Executive Success Program, which was Raniere's first program, were discussed in this book. Um, he he kind of had to include them, uh, because he was called in, and that was one of his failed extractions. Uh, he didn't specifically say it in there, but I know from reading Don't Call It a Cult that, that the attempt he made there failed, the person went back. Nobody's going to have a. If somebody tells you they have a hundred percent success success rate, because it's because they've only tried to help like three people and managed to get all three out. Their fourth will probably be a failure. All right. He, he has a seventy five percent success rate, which is pretty phenomenal overall. Now, after you break someone down, you use an organized peer group to build them up and kind of mold them into the accepted group image, using peer groups to promote conformity, sort of a monkey see monkey do method of leadership, um, or more accurately, do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) Do what I tell you to, and I will lead. But don't follow me. I'll do what I want to do. That was Rainier's method anyways. Uh, The final step is manipulation of a person's environment to stabilize the modified behavior. So, And that's why Reverend Jones wanted his church to relocate to South America with him. If he can control the environment, he can control the people in the environment much easier. So when when you start getting people moving into a compound all on their own... And understand, not all compounds are going to fall under cults. There are genuine compounds where people are cooperative, they still have their own family units, they just come together to help each other. That's called a community. It's not necessarily a bad thing. There there are fine distinctions here, and he makes those distinctions in this book, okay? Oh, that's pretty strong. Maybe I should have gone for the peach liqueur, even though my liquor cabinet's straining. It's almost too sweet. Now, once the person has been broken down and rebuilt into an acceptable facsimile of themselves, it's much easier to convince them to sign over their life savings or that it's a great honor to have sex with the exalted leader or have sex with that person because the exalted leader says it would be good for you. I think my dogs are eating my door. Are you eating my door? You're eating the wall. Stop eating the wall, thank you. Now after analyzing the leader and how recruits are treated, you can analyze the group at large. Does the group display zealous and unquestioning commitment to the leader and regard what the leader says as the law? Are questioning the leader, doubt, and dissent, discouraged or punished? If they are, then you have to be able to engage in discourse. And if it's punished to to disagree with them, then you're probably in a cult. It's a big hint to the political extremes out there. If you are punished for disagreeing with them, just saying. Uh, Does this group use mind-altering practices, which are used in excess? All right, I mean, please note, it's used in excess is the concern here, because some of these mind-altering practices can include like meditation and chanting, and those in and of themselves are not bad things. But if it's used to basically clear the slate, turn your brain, your brain into a tabula rasa, that's a problem. Because if it's done to debilitation, or the mind-altering practice includes things like denunciation sessions, speaking in tongues, you might be looking at a cult. If the leadership dictates how members should think, act, or feel, if the group is elitist or claims exalted status for for its leader, or uses an us-versus-them mentality, well, it might be a cult. In all, there's like 15 things to look for, although the author points out that not all cults will use all 15 of these things. All cults will display at least some of these traits. And yeah, I could absolutely see how our modern political discourse calls into Cultish ways of thought. I mean, they are. It was weird reading this. Going, oh yeah, that totally fits 100 percent the extremes of the spectrum. Right. There is a full chapter on brainwashing and how exactly does one get brainwashed? And more importantly, covered in depth is how to unbrainwash a person. I thought as I was reading this book that a degree in psychology focusing on cognitive behavioral therapy might be really useful. But as I kept reading and as Ross explained all the steps that go into undoing the damage of a cult. More than therapy, education is what's important. Although, I mean, therapy can help once recover with recovery once one is out of the cult. It can help somebody find their way back to normalcy after that. But to, the actual getting them out part, education is more important than therapy. And really just knowing your shit, which is what Ross does, is he knows his stuff. That's how he is so successful. And that sounds simple, right? Just sit him down and tell him what you know you ever tried having a political debate on Facebook? I mean, how'd that go for you? Just, you know, like in the history of ever, no one has ever, I think, managed to successfully convert somebody to their way of thinking on a political debate on Facebook. Uh... And that's about what it's like trying to talk to a cult victim, right? The steps are specifically laid out, starting with who's going to be involved in the intervention. Anyone who is antagonistic to the person involved should not be there. It's a three to five day process. So anyone involved needs to know when they will be joining the party, whether it's day one, day three, or the very bitter end. And whatever they're joining, they have to agree that from that point forward, they're involved, right? They don't get a pull out. Absolute honesty is key. There can be no prevarication, no pretending to see their point, and they've been lied to enough. So honesty is what's needed. Um, The facilitator in this book's case, Ross, obviously, his job is to keep everyone on track and keep the conversation moving forward and keep it notched down because obviously things can get really heated here. It's very human to want to to bring up your own points and engage in that debate and the argument, but the point is not to debate them. It's not to debate them. It's not to engage them in a two-sided debate. It's to present the information and then let the cult victim lead the conversation, believe it or not. Because you don't know what's going to draw them in and make them rethink what's been going on. And The internet and the connection of everything has kind of made his job both easier and harder. It's easier because information on individual cults is much easier to come by now, right? You just Google it and there's a whole lot of information. You can always find the people who have left the cult and get their perspectives. Uh, it's harder because communication is now always possible. One of the things that is required in the intervention is that the person being intervened has to agree to no communication with the cult or members of the cult. These days that means no cell phone, no internet connection, no telephones, maybe no television depending on the cult. I think this, I mean, this serves two purposes. I mean, the, the one he talks about primarily is to ensure that the person doesn't contact the cult and get coached. Right. And contacting can include even just reviewing the cult's website. He, he pointed out for one of his failed intervention stories that, that the spouse in that story failed to disconnect the Internet as promised. Um, he, he thought that wouldn't be fair or something. And so he, after the day's intervention was over, the wife went online. Now, she didn't talk to anybody in the cult, but she did go to their website, look up their talking points, and the intervention failed because she thought she needed both sides, even though she'd already had the cult side like for you know, several years at that point. So um, it made her rethink the conversation with Ross and it failed. Now the second purpose, and it's not explicitly mentioned in the book, but I think this is just as important, is that the evenings at home with just the family and no outside distractions, that's going to serve to reconnect the person with the world and people outside the cult that matter to that person. And I think that probably also was really important to getting somebody out of a very dangerous situation. And during the intervention, you need one point of contact to talk the person back into the room if they want to leave. This is because, and this is very important to understand, the days of forced deprogramming are long gone. Snagging someone off the street, taking them to a hotel room, talking to them for days until they agree you're right, that's, that's called kidnapping. You will be arrested. They will throw you in jail if you do this. So the only way to deprogram someone is by facilitating a voluntary meeting with them. Come up with a family event. Hey, it's mom's birthday. We really miss you. We'd love to see you. Can you come down for mom's birthday? Something like that. But it has to be voluntary. You cannot make them stay. If they want to leave, they leave. There's nothing you can do about it. Because that's called kidnapping. So keep it civilized. Keep it friendly. It's in everybody's best interest. Plus that freedom of choice. If they're in a cult, they've already lost a lot of their freedom of choice. And so... Giving that back to them, even if if it means leaving you, can open a door. Even if they leave then, they might later rethink their involvement with the cult based on that one thing, that one chance, that, that ability to leave. I think reading through his intervention case studies helps to really drive home why his format works as well as it does. And like I said, he had a 75% success rate. And it's because what you or I might think is the most critical element, that thing that would snap us back to reality may not be what pulls the cult victim's interest and whatever point from the gathered information on the specific cult grabs the victim's interest puppies thank you whatever grabs the victim's interest that's the one you want to explore with them for one person it might be the narcissism of the leader They, they might not realize it until you start presenting with that information for another it might be exploring the finances of the group realizing that the money that's being donated is not in fact going to better the group but it's going to By the leader of private jet, for example. For another, it could be the control and cut off from family that has them concerned and they don't realize it until it's presented to them as such. And all you can do is present the information, see where the victim takes it, and then follow them down that rabbit hole. All right? And they just keep presenting the information. One of the most interesting comments in the book came literally at the end in the postscript (laughs) literally very bitter end and this book was written in 2014 and and that's relevant information because here's the quote actually i have two of them in this section quote nevertheless an unsettling aspect of our modern information age and the advent of social media is the potential for cult-like cocooning which can take place whenever groups or individuals either intentionally or unintentionally filter their world end quote like five more minutes guys I don't wanna so he then specifically describes the self selection that goes into creating the online echo chamber that is social media and how very few of us seek out that alternate point of view. Then he says, quote this virtual bubble of relative isolation, which only true believers inhabit while reinforcing groups and people, can become relatively resistant and rather watertight to any outside frame of reference, alternate ideas, or perspectives, regardless of the facts. This cocooning can promote what can be seen as a kind of cult-like mindset, that, which includes an inherent we-versus-them mentality. This cocooning phenomenon may explain the growing societal polarization that now appears to be intensifying in the United States. End quote. No. No. Four on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm done with <laughs> started wrestling. So I was like, Papi, so they came over, Balter jumped on me, and then snuck a sip of the cocktail. <laughs> so you probably don't want any of that now. No. <laughs> so that was eight years ago. Um, that he wrote that, have things improved, like even slightly, uh, in that polarization, or have they gotten exponentially worse since those words were written? And Each side thinks the other has been encased in a cult, which was the problem I had with cultish last year, right, when I read that book, and it was so clearly one-sided and biased and very much written without a shred of irony, delineating the right as being members of a cult, without ever acknowledging the same behavior on the left. And here I am stuck in the middle, looking at both sides, going, "You all need to be deprogrammed because this is insane." So I panned as pretty bad last year. Uh, I mean, in retrospect with Rick Allen Ross's book Gu- as guidance, she didn't entirely miss the mark. She, she, I mean, she, she got some of the key points right, but the panning still stands, and here's why. That book's author, Amanda Montell made it seem like the white middle-class women were the most likely to be pulled into cults, and given that the cults she was looking at were like LuLaRoe, yoga, CrossFit, sure, those businesses target a specific demographic, usually white middle-class suburbia. That notion was quickly disabused by Rick Allen Ross. As Ross points out, destructive cults historically actually target college campuses for recruitment, but that in reality, a quote a cult can target and recruit anyone regardless of education or so- social background no one is invulnerable or somehow immune and having read this book thinking you are su- having read her book excuse me thinking that the, if, you, if you only read cultish by amanda Montell, thinking you are somehow immune because of your education or social status might actually make you mo- more vulnerable hubris can make you vulnerable uh, she also tried to say that modern cults are the making of white men. Like, literally, that was kind of the uptake that I got from it. But as Ross points out, cults are literally a global phenomenon. And the Hare Krishnas are a cult. They filed bankruptcy following the allegations of child sexual abuse. The Unification Church was founded and headed by Reverend Sun Myung Moon in South Korea. Falun Gong was founded by Li Hongzhi in China. Uh, China has actually acknowledged Falun Gong as a cult. They've been expelled from China. China. I mean, communism's a freaking cult, and they're like, well, that that cult's also bad, but they're actually doing immolation. Yes, we've killed 60 million of our own people through starvation, but we didn't make them set fire to themselves, so we're going to boot them out. China said that. Alm Shinriko is a Japanese cult founded by Shoka Asahara. One of the earliest cult-led terrorist attacks in the United States occurred in Oregon in 1984 when Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh convinced his followers to poison 10 restaurants in in the Dales with salmonella. In 1990, Yahweh Ben Yahweh, who preached a doctrine of racism against the white devils, was ultimately indicted for racketeering conspiracy and linked to 14 murders, two attempted murders, and a bombing. The movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments was a Ugandan cult in, you know, South Africa, run by Joseph Kibbuteri. And in 2002, Malachi York, this one I did hear about, Malachi York, who founded the United nu- Nuwabian Nation of Moors, was arrested for transporting minors across state lines for sex. Now, all of these were specifically mentioned in this book as cults. It's not like I was just doing a random Google search. The, one of the world's foremost leading experts on cults identified all of these as cults. They all used the methods specifically identified by Ross as cultish to maintain control of their followers. All had the requisite charismatic leader. All were mentioned side by side with the better known Jim Jones, David Koresh, Charles Manson, Marshall Applewhite. All were identified as the world's foremost, by one of the world's foremost leading experts on cults, as cult leaders. And quite clearly, not all of them were white, or even American for that matter. Uh, This book was very readable. The quick rundown on what is a cult, the information on different cults, the case studies on interventions he's done, all very quick reading, and they sandwiched the central premise of here's how you get someone out. It was quite good. Um, I feel like cult extractor is dying as a career path because it it involves a lot of travel. It's not always successful. You get threatened a lot by cults. Um, I, I remember in the don't call it a cult book she talks about how he was like sued multiple times by Nexium. the cults will come after you with a burning passion if you start getting their people out they will sue you for defamation all of that takes money to defend against and so and they got money because remember all their followers are funneling their funds in so it's a career path that is not without its hazards and legal loop legal trickeries, legal um booby traps. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, I think it's an important one. He does have a website. um, You know, I'll put it up here and I'll also link it in the description. If you want more information on Colts, his website is free. The book is chock full of solid information. And uh, that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe and I will see you guys next week. Bye.